Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Robin Ayub. I'm the founder of the Localization Fireside Chat podcast channel. This relatively new and young platform has given me the and the audience uh, an incredible opportunity to listen to thought leaders and industry professionals as they tell their intriguing localization stories, discuss trends, challenges, and innovation in the industry. So if you have not done so already, I invite you to connect with me and join the conversation. I have the pleasure and the honor to be joined today, this morning, by a what I call my personal. I, I came up with this nickname. I hopefully, hopefully you don't you don't you don't mind it. The Oracle of the localization industry, uh, Renato Nato, and Renato brings with him decades of experience everywhere he goes. To be honest, I've uh, met him recently in Montreal in one of our conferences, our industry conferences. I had the pleasure to speak to him and his wife. Thank you for being there with us during that day, Renato. Appreciate the travel including in his current role currently, he is the chairman of the co-founder of NIMSI Research with extensive experience in international consulting, market research, sales and marketing, you know, the gamut of skills and talents and education and volunteering. And I, you know, I, I'll, be, I'll be missed if I didn't mention your volunteering work. You're a member of the board of the advisors for the Translators Without Borders. You're members of the advisory board on Taos. You're currently vice president of Abrates. I don't want to pronounce the rest of that, <laughs> which, is, which is, which is, I won't be doing it any justice by pronouncing it in Portuguese. I, you know, great, great portfolio of education background, extensive experience. Happy to have you on the show this morning. Happy to have you with me on this episode. Renato, it's a pleasure and honor to have you with me. So great. So the first, the first thing I want to start with is, Tell us a little bit about yourself and the and the and and you know we started this episode, <clears throat> we started this channel by saying everybody's got a story. What's your story? How did you get into this? Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> As most people in our generation, uh, I came into the translation and localization industry uh, by chance. Uh, it, it wasn't a choice. It wasn't uh, by education, not direct education. But uh, it was opportunity, and uh, I lived, I, I grew up in six countries between the age of one and the age of 19. And I learned languages because my father worked for an international bank, and we went to the local schools in every country that we lived. So language was the way that we would make friends and girlfriends and have uh, relationships in the countries that we lived. So at 19, my father died. I moved back to Brazil. I start teaching English, was my first job. And one day somebody asks, we need a translator. Do you know anybody that can do translations? And this, somebody asked that to my brother, a younger brother who said, oh, I, I speak languages, but I don't like that kind of stuff. My brother does. So he refers the person to me. And what was happening was there was a big film festival in Rio de Janeiro. And the Italian translator, the, the guy who did the translations for Italian movies had died just a week before. And they needed somebody to translate two movies from Italian into Portuguese. I had no experience, but I said yes. And we started, I was paired with, which I later found out was the most respected, famous 
movie translator in Brazil and he coached me and he taught me on how to do the subtitles. But this was at a time when there was no computer, no timing. You had to type in a typewriter. You had to burn the subtitles in a film. You have to go to a lab. You have to use a moviola to go back and forth and watch uh, clips of the movie. So that was my, my first professional way into the translation industry. And then eventually, I think that a, a turning point that is important in this, this story, I was 19 years old, four years later, 23 years old, married with going to, to school still, going to university, and I was doing translations on the side. And I realized that if I worked my whole life doing what I was doing, I wasn't going to be making a lot of money. So I started a translation company in 1983, which is 40 years ago. Oh, and wow. that's the beginning. Wow. Those are the beginnings, let's put wow. it this way. <laughs> you know, you know, you, um, most people that you mentioned our age, most people I talk to in our age group, they seem to have one thing in common, which is they came to the industry by chance, as you mentioned oh, earlier. Cool. Like I, I told you my story, right? So, you know, I was coming back from a trip to, on a business trip, I was handling sales for tech companies and before this, and I was coming back from a business trip and the gentleman happened to be sitting beside me on a two hour flight, happened to run a translation company 21 years ago. And he convinced me two hours later during our flight to go work for him as a, you know, handle his business development. And, you know, the company wasn't big. It was like a couple of million dollars. It was to call LexiTech International. They were based in Moncton, New Brunswick, and nobody, I mean, it's a company in New Brunswick. I mean, I, I, but when I was in the tech business, I used to go sell in California. First thing I have to explain to people, where is Moncton? That's, that's my first yes. sales. Um, but, you know, that's, that's 21 years ago. And I was just, again, an observation when I was in the tech sector, I was changing jobs. Like I was, I was moving from one company to another, seeking another type of thrill, another type of excitement, either product or service, et cetera. I seem to have found it here in this industry. It's always exciting. There's always something new. There's always a new customer and you, you work across industries. You're not stuck to one industry. There is because it's a horizontal service and you, well, you always have new technology and new things coming up. We, we touch every aspect of human activity, right? Why? Because the core of what our industry does is mediate communication. And communication is how we accomplish everything. This is how we buy, how we sell, how we produce, how we interact, how we build, how we create. It's through communication. And every aspect of human activity requires communication. And translation is there. It's that bridge between activities. And this is why it's so exciting. It, it, it's very interesting that I interviewed once the, the, the CEO of STL, Adolfo Hernandez, and he had come from outside the industry. He became the CEO of STL, transitioning it before it was sold to RWS. And after he was about a year, a year and a half in the industry, I asked him, so you've worked in other industries. He had worked in telecom, in, in security, and other uh, software, in other segments. And, and I asked him, what, what is different between the industries where you've worked and the translation localization industry? He said, nobody leaves. He said that in every other industry where he's worked, people would worked three, four, five years in, in that company, let's say in the software industry, and then 
they would go to hospitality, they would go to oil, they would go to manufacturing, they would go to completely different technologies, but the people in the translation industry, and this is why we know, everybody knows everybody, everybody works with everybody. It's a very interesting, it's the nature of our industry is being very collaborative, but also has this aspect that you said, it, 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 you stuck with it 21 years. And it's like this, this magnet, we attract people and they stay. Some people go away, but, but not very common. <laughs> right. Now, moving along a little bit in our conversation here, I know a big part of your life currently is NIMSY. And not just NIMSY, you've got a few other things on the go. But why don't we start by telling our audience who don't know NIMSY, at least, you know, what is NIMSY and what's this about? And how can one individual who are in the business or not in the industry, maybe from some people from outside the industry can take advantage of your services, your products, et cetera. Tell us a little bit more about NIMSY, I guess. NIMSY, it's a market research and consulting company, just to, to in, in, in a short description. What we essentially do is we track what is going on in the language services industry in all aspects of it. We write reports, we have subscribers, we have members in our subscription model, and we provide all types of consultings for our clients. So we work with the three key parts of the language industry, which are the, the buyers, the LSPs, the language service providers, and the technology companies, the, 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 the software part of the business that creates efficiencies and, and, and uh, productivity in our space. So uh, for each one of these organizations, we tend to have products that enable them to achieve their goals. So on the client side, we work a lot on mostly strategic work. Uh, we work on vendor audits. We work on usability. Uh, we work with them to see how their app or their product is performing in 40 countries and check how their end users are um, interacting with the language in their, in their technology. We do technology recommendations. You have companies that, so we publish, uh, uh, I have a poster here behind me, which is the Language Technology Atlas. This poster tracks uh, last year, 837 uh, technologies next year. I mean, in September, we're publishing an update. It's 1,016 technologies that are going to be mapped. This universe, when, once a, a client, a buyer on LSP has to buy a technology that has 87 solutions, they need to show, I don't have the time to talk to 87 salespeople. Give me a short list and we work on this, determining what are the best solutions for each type of client. We've worked with designing localization departments. I mean, uh, there are no two projects that are the same. The other, for the LSPs, usually the focus is on growth and on professional development for their production teams. So we have a feature that we call office hours where any, anybody on the client side can talk to any one of our 40 consultants around the world about a topic that they need a solution right away. Uh, what I've learned, Robin, over the years is that people don't have time to read long reports. Nobody wants to spend a lot of money to have reports. But most of the problems that people have can be solved in a 15 to 30 minute conversation with an expert. 
which has developed that report, which is a byproduct of research, right? So I like to call this ad hoc consulting, where the client just picks up the phone, uh, I mean, goes on a website, schedules some time with one of our experts to talk about interpretation, machine translation. Now everybody's talking about large language models and generative AI. Uh, They just book time and talk to them. And with the technology companies, we're monitoring the progress, progress of technology. We have a team, we have four people in our team that are 100% dedicated to see demos, review the technology, compare technologies, and make recommendations to the uh, technology companies on how to position themselves and be competitive and understand the market landscape. And we finally have a a fourth line of service, which is M&A, mergers and acquisitions. And we work a lot with investors in doing due diligence of companies that they're going to buy, and building a business case and a financial business case to take the company to the next level. So it's very, how to say, we cater and we deliver the information according to the need of the clients. At the end of the day, what we do is we're collecting and curating information about our, our, our three key products, which are free to everybody. You can go to our website and download is the Nimsy 100, which is a ranking of the top companies in the world with the analysis of the industry as a whole, what are the trends, what are the growth rates, where the business is growing, where the business is shrinking and so on. We have the interpreting index, which is a ranking and an analysis of the interpretation side of the business. And then we have the language technology atlas, which is this once or twice a year, we update this map or, or, or landscape of the technology in our industry, which is exploding, by the way. With this AI thing, you, you, we see new technologies, new tools showing up every week. That's right. I mean, the, I was just talking to, earlier to somebody else We're working on a panel for knowledge-based industry which the language industry or the localization industry is part of that. And one of the questions that we're, one of the things that we're trying to address is that uh, technology is available to the people now how to use it. It is not, you know, a big obstacle now. All you need is a thin layer on top of that from an interface perspective. And you already have a new technology. Uh, You can say that the core is the same, but you're adding thin layers of interfaces at the top of it. One of the things I wanted to ask you, and and since you mentioned it from a, from where you stand, I'd love to hear your views, Renato, on, especially when you mentioned M&As and, 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 and the financial aspect of things and attracting investors and interested party in, into our industry or within our industry. How's that being affected now with the, the economic conditions, A? And then I have a follow-up question on the money coming from outside of our industry, like in the form of private equity firms. How's that impacting yeah. industry as well? So, so not much. Uh, let's say that last year, 2022, there was a little bit of a wait and see. Let's say it was a little bit of an accommodation period. The majority of the top 20 companies in our ranking are today owned by private equity. It's important to understand that the language industry, I've been tracking it since 2009. It's 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 an industry that has never had a crisis. It's an industry that I like to say it's impervious to crisis. It's constantly growing. And it's growing above the average of the economy, right? We grow more than GDP. Why? Because 
unlike other industries, it's an industry that has three vectors for growth, right? We grow because there is more volume, we grow because there is more languages. So the average number of languages that companies translate into increases over time because they expand. And then there is another element which is competitive is the proliferation of platforms, right? There are, every time there is a new platform that takes hold, the, there is content that needs to be translated and adapted for that platform. So uh, a couple, three, a, a few years ago, we were talking about the metaverse, but the metaverse is something that is morphing into the metaverse. I used it as a placeholder for, for a new platform. We are going to work, we are starting to see the implementation of 5G and the proliferation of new environments. And now with ChatGPT, threads, different ways of sharing information, we will see an increase in work for translation companies. So I, I would say that the activity and the interest in our business, because it's a growth business, because it's a profitable business, we have very low, a very low asset base. You don't need a lot of investment to start a translation company. And you have a, a very, very good yield, a very good return on investment. So it's the perfect type of, of organization that uh, private equity firms are interested in. Oh, Cash cows. <laughs> right. So the, the other question I have is you mentioned uh, you've been tracking the industry for many years. And, and, and with all the respect uh, to what your um, organization is doing, Renato, wondering what is your views and what, what, what's your thoughts on, you know, most of the, like I hear the, the, the statistics around how many companies around the world delivering localization services and they're approaching the 20,000 mark, a number of companies. So <clears throat> wondering if the research and the statistics are following all of them or is it focused on the top of the spreadsheet, if you will, if you sort them down by revenue? And how accurate is the detailed information at the tail number of companies that they are in this industry? This is, this is an interesting conversation, Robin, because let's say there are two parts to, to, this, uh, to this question. One is the, the information that you gather. We, at NIMSI, we started with the NIMSI 100, we have, we track, we work with associations, we work with the ATC in the UK, we work with the ALC here in the United States, we work with Bliss in Brazil, we work with Argentina, Australia, all, all, many countries, we, we do surveys and we look at what the middle of the tail and the long tail is. We, even though we publish, the, the top 100 includes more or less 200 companies, because there are 100 companies that we know are in the market, but we don't have public information or they don't share with us what, what is their revenue, right? One of the examples is that last year, we published the revenues for Sorensen, an $800 million company that nobody knew about. We knew about it, but we couldn't publish it because the information wasn't public and they didn't disclose their official information. But the moment that there was a public record we found a, a, a filing with the SEC, we were able to disclose that information because the work that we do is that it's not marketing. We are a research company. So 
the, uh, the company doesn't want us to disclose it, tough luck. The information is public. We have, as we have the obligation to share the information that is available. On the other hand, we have about 100 companies that are listed that don't have, we don't have, we know from the number of employees, from the participation in the market, from the feedback that we get from their direct competitors, that they are over, we, with the threshold that we started for Ninzi 100 was $10 million, but it's around 12 right now, 12, 14 right now. We list them because these companies are in the market competing with you, with everybody else for talent, for clients, for technology, for resources, even though they're not really listed. So what we try, every market analysis is an approximation, right? It's, it's an educated guess. Accuracy, what, what, what I like to say, so the, the second part, one is, does it capture everything? It captures the way we can see, right? We, we, we can imagine. You, you can look at, at, at the moon when it is in, 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 I don't know, you have a partial view of the, of the moon, you see that there is a curve, you can imagine that it is round, right? That is a sphere. It's pretty much what we do when we're doing market analysis. We, we have a slice, we know more or less what are the percentages and we can make projections. And there is a lot of information that is not necessarily captured. When we measure the size of the language industry, we're not necessarily looking at only what the translation companies do. There is a lot of work. There is a an huge market worldwide of literary translations that is not captured in businesses because this is usually a publisher working with a, a, a professional translator directly. And actually, probably the, 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 one of the largest volumes of, of translation that there is in the world is probably literary translation that we don't capture. There is a right. lot of work that is done in, in-house inside organizations. Mm-hmm. There is work that is done by freelance translators, by volunteer translators. There's so much translations that is going on outside the business of translation. I, I think that a good way for, for people to grasp what a similar, so frequently I'm asked, what other industry can we compare the translation industry to? And I like to compare it with the accounting firms, right? You have this huge international PricewaterhouseCoopers, Deloitte, Ernst & Young, and so on, the, the big four. They used to be, I started my, my career at Arthur Anderson, which at the time it was the big seven, right? And there was a lot of consolidation in that space. And, but then at the same time, you have this long tail. I have a, an accounting firm that does our accounting work. They're national in the United States, but they are maybe a billion dollars at, mo- at most. And then you have the, the local accounting firm that takes care. When I lived in Massachusetts, there was a street. It was very interesting in the town that I lived, Newburyport, where it was just two blocks and you had lawyers and accountants, lawyers and accountants, lawyers and accountants, (laughs) one after the other, right? And then you have the individual accountant that works for the little shop and does the tax filing for the customer at the end of the year. It's one job and he has like I don't know, 200 clients and so on. So 
it's very similar. It's a professional service. It's very diluted. It affects every organization because everybody, if one of the things I have an accounting background, one of the things that uh, I like to say about accounting is that accounting is the language of business, right? So it's very similar. Uh, they deal with numbers. We deal with letters and words. Yeah, that's right. So based on uh, your research, I guess the audience would like to know, is there any update to the size of the uh, language industry or the localization industry globally? Have we updated those numbers or are the numbers still around the same? Well, the, 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 <laughs> usually, so the way you do projections is that you identify what is the growth rate of the industry, what it's like to be, if it is sustainable, and you adjust your projections. Usually you make projections for five years according to the growth rate, yeah. right? So our industry, and, and our industry grows, the growth rate varies according to the segment. So for example, during the pandemic, interpretation had an explosion, right? right. The growth rate in the interpretation industry was you know, over 20%, right? Yeah. It's yeah. over 20% in, in, yeah. in, in average. So right now we, we, we are, so since we started here in Nimzi six years ago, our projection of growth varied between seven and seven point five percent a year. We call this CAGR, compound annual growth rate. So because it's growth over growth, so it's it's compounded, right? So we and and what we do is we track the growth of the biggest companies and we track the growth of some smaller companies. And keep in mind, it's a very complex engineering exercise because if you are a million dollar company and uh, you double in size and you have 100% growth, you grew by another million. So you're a $2 million company. If you are $30 million company and you want to grow 100%, you need to sell another $30 million. So it's 30 times the growth, right? I know all about it. You cannot talk easily about averages and percentages when you're comparing orders of magnitude that are very different. Right. So what, what one what I think that in our last analysis we reduced the growth, the pace of the growth to 6.2%, right? But we do this looking at data points. It's not, oh, what is the number? Where's the wind going today? And let's pick a number. We do some calculations based on the data that we collect. But what I would tell you is that I have a suspicion. I don't have data yet. It's too early in the year. But based on things that we have tracked, conversations that we've had, we have a sense that the first half of this year had a slower growth. Slower growth is not a a reduction, right? It's not that we're growing super fast. We're growing at at a... growing uh, but we're still growing exactly yeah. so this this we we believe that in the first quarter of this year uh, what we have anecdotal information is that the growth has slowed and uh, but it has started to pick up again and at the end of the year when we review the numbers we're going to make projections for the future i suspect in large because of the onslaught of AI into the system that we're going to see uh, 
slower growth. But growth is also a tricky metric because growth shows the growth of revenue, of money. It doesn't indicate the growth in volume, the growth in work. That's what I was going right? to say. Because activity is also growing. Absolutely, because the efficiencies that the new technology is bringing in, it's allowing us to do more with, with less, if you will. And that's exactly. converted into dollars. So yeah. in 2020, go ahead. When we're talking about growth, we're talking about revenue growth, about the money. Right. It's like measuring the GDP of a country. It right. measures what you're producing. It doesn't measure wealth. It doesn't measure health. It measures, it's just a data point that we as a society chose to use as a metric for growth. It's, it's just a money thing. So are we still around $30 billion globally or are we over that? No, we're way over. I mean, in, in NIMS's calculations, we are at around $65 billion and we're going to reach 70 very soon. The, the, there is a difference. The other metric, and, and again, Slater uses a smaller number for the size of the industry because it, it, it tracks what they call the addressable market. What is the market that uh, uh, LSPs can sell to, right? But that's not the size of the market. That's a, a, a slice of the market. It's a different way of looking at the same thing. They are not, how do you say, ex mutually exclusive. They're, so what Slater me measures is a fraction. It's a part of the market. And we look at the whole market, right? We're looking at, there are huge companies that we don't track because their information is not public in the military oh. environment, right? Yep. Here in the United States, there are companies that, uh, Northrop Grumman, which is a multi-billion dollar government contractor, has a translation department, but we cannot, we don't know, they don't disclose their revenue, they don't separate the revenue. They have big contracts that are $5, million, $5 billion over five years or something like that, and it's, it exists. This is, they hire translators, they hire project managers, they use their own software that we don't know about, right? Uh, yep. or some of the software solutions that is ava are available to us. So these are different. And one of the things that I like to say, Robin, since we're talking about the size of the market, the way I like to look at this is that there's no right and wrong. There is a reference point, right? And if you think that I'm wrong by 20%, adjust your numbers by 20%. It's, it's going to be your guess. If That's you right. think that I'm conservative, that the market is bigger, Adjust it. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the number, the methodology that I use is, is, how do you say, an assessment that we do considering a lot of stuff that is not necessarily captured in the data that we collect in surveys and so on. We only scrape the surface. It's the tip of the iceberg, literally. So the, I'm, I'm assuming there will be a big celebration where we hit the 100, million, 100 billion mark for an industry globally. It should be. I mean... Oh. If we continue continue growing, and and you started the conversation by saying earlier that our industry about connecting people, about bringing those demographics together, and the more revenue, or well, the more investment, if you want to call it revenue or investment, comes into the industry by providing services, etc. I think those are enablers to provide more communication tools to people who don't have it. It's not available to them. Absolutely, and and one of the things that is is I like I track is the demographic change of the world, right? Right now, the biggest country in the world is India. 
India is growing, it's, it's one of the fastest growing economies in the world. India has 22 official languages, but it has hundreds of uh, languages that are bigger. Some of these languages that you don't know the name of are bigger than some of the European languages that uh, we translate to easily. So the other data that I was looking at recently, there was an article in the New York Times about the changing demographics between now and 2050, how the Western uh, economies, the more advanced economies are aging and how the Indian, African, Southeast Asian economies, the growth economies are, they're going to bring a huge number of people to the working age population. And what, for me, what working age population means is consumers, people that make money to spend money. And when you have consumers, you have people who want to sell to them. So I wouldn't be surprised that if in the next 10 years, we add languages like Lingala. Swahili is already in, in, in many products, but I don't know, Igbo or some of the West African languages into the, the mix because there's going to be a consumer base that wants to consume. You see, I don't know if you know that uh, there is this whole, I, I, I might butcher it. I don't remember exactly how it's called, but uh, Nigeria has their own Bollywood. I think it's called Nollywood. It's movies that are created in Africa for Africans. And they need to be localized. They need to be subtitled and, and dubbed into local languages and this is there is a huge market for for things like that right yeah, uh, i also heard that they're they're really bad movies but there is a public <laughs> it, it doesn't it doesn't matter uh, if, if there is an audience quality mm-hmm. is 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 in the eye of the beholder as they say you're right though consumers are driving the demand for uh translation and i remember you know since we you and i are in the same age when I started in, in this business, I heard it multiple times, repeated it repeatedly. If a high-tech company is selling like some high-tech gear to some other country, the the norm was if you don't understand English, you can't buy a product. Yeah. But that has changed now. If you don't put it in my language as a consumer, I'm not buying your product. So the and there is another element that is even worse, right? If I don't translate, somebody locally is going to copy my product or uh, clone or or invent something similar and is going to start selling it in, in this country in the local language. There was a, a company called Rocket Internet uh, that did this in the early 2000s in Germany. In, they, they, would, they got Facebook. They got a ton of money from Facebook because they did a German version of Facebook and translated it immediately into several languages and, and uh, People started using it, and Facebook was only in English, so they had to buy the the, the product from, from this company to own it, right? And they did this with uh, uh, dozens of companies. They would come to the United States, look at it's a publicly traded company in Germany now. It's one of the biggest IT companies in Germany. They would see a website that sells furniture, and they would clone that website and do the same thing in 15 languages and sell it in Europe. If you don't localize, uh, you, you, you're creating, and you're successful, you're creating room for your competitors to serve the local audiences. 
Let's, uh, if you don't mind, uh, Renato, let's switch uh, gear to the uh, now what people are calling it the elephant in the room is the the new tech that is coming into our industry. And I would like for you and me, you and me today, uh, being the two positive individuals that we are, to focus on the opportunities that this will create for our industry. Because I see a huge upside for this if we really know what we're doing, if an entrepreneur or a service provider really contemplate this technology and the opportunity that it creates, it's going to be massive, in my opinion, in my opinion, that's going to help propel us to the $100 billion industry that we're going to be going into. Let's talk a little bit about that. What's what's your read on all the technology that you see in your analysis? So there is, I wrote an article on LinkedIn and, and your listeners can check it out, which is essentially, I found a picture of an article in a newspaper in Brazil from 30 years ago, so Mm -hmm. 1993. And there's a picture of me with a PC and the tagline is translating without computers is a thing of the past. And that's the title of the article. And I remember the discussion of people. I remember that I talked to a colleague in the Brazilian Translators Association that he was shocked that uh, we were using computers in the industry because he loved, in his words, his central connection with the keyboard of his typewriter, right? He liked the roundness of the keyboard and, and the computer keyboards were flat and things like that. So I, I, and, and what I wrote in that article is that being for 40 years in this business, I've seen the cycle of new technologies that are going to eliminate our industry and they end up feeding the growth of our industry. I don't want to dismiss, I, 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 I don't intend to be a know-it-all, but ChatGPT or generative AI in our industry follows a very, 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 very similar pattern. I just want to highlight that until Last year, we were fighting against neuromachine translation because that was the end of the translation profession, right? Nobody talks about that anymore. It's all chat GPT, right? We forgot it, right? And before it was, before it was uh, translation memory, right? We always forget the previous threat, right? There is a new existential threat that is going to eliminate our, our industry. But this time is real, right? Like every other time. And, and this is the gist of, of, of the article that I wrote. The, the, so there is an element of hype that if, if you're familiar with the Gartner hype curve, you, you have this uh, element of excitement, right? You, you, you go to the hype, the peak of the hype curve is like everybody is super excited of what, things that are going to happen. And then you have a trough of disillusionment. There is this big drop in adoption and, oh, this is not as good as it was. And then there is the slope of enlightenment and the plateau of productivity. So I think one of the things that is different about generative AI was the speed, right? It was the fastest uh, uh, adopted technology in, in, in no time. But it's also, I, I, I already see the curve going, going down and the adoption, depending on the group of people that you're talking to, is very different than in the general public, 
one of the things that I like to do is I ask random people because the difference between generative AI and the technologies that have threatened our existence in the past is that it affects every walk of life, every business, everything is everybody's talking about generative AI. It's, it's impacting any profession. Correct. But the, the, the interesting thing, I, I spoke recently at a conference in Italy and there were close to 100 people in the room. And I started my presentation uh, by asking the audience, how many people were using ChatGPT? And two thirds of the company, of, of the people, had not used it yet. And of the third that remained, the people that were using it, how many of these people were using it every day? Three out of 100 people, 3%, right? It's, it's an anecdotal sample, but this is the kind of thing that we are afraid of something that we don't know. Once you get to know it, you see that there are limitations. And now it's all over the news, my colleague at Mimsy published uh, an article recently, well, it, this week, about the fact that the performance has dropped significantly with ChatGPT. I love this, this, this technology and, and the change and how it has helped me kill pro my procrastination. I'm a, a, a born procrastinator. But I have four tabs open in my browser. I have ChatGPT. ChatGPT Plus, I have Hugging Face, which is an open source free solution. I have uh, Claude.ai, and I use uh, Bing also, and Barf 5. So I play with it, I test it, and it's amazing. But how do you bring this to your day-to-day -day life? I think that we need to look at this challenge uh, of this technology. First of all, there's hype. Second of all, the threat for different parts of, of the industry is different. It's more threatening for individual translators. It's uh, a huge opportunity for LSPs. And people in between will have different benefits. But the way I look at this, it's a productivity booster. It makes your life easier. And for the translators who are listening to us, I think that you need to look at what happens with this. One of the trends that we have been noticing is that there is a decline in the number of professional translators joining the industry. So, so there is scarcity. And if you are a translator that embraces technology, if you are a translator that addresses the needs of your customers, you're going to be not threatened in this business because there are fewer and fewer professional translators working in the business. Young people don't want to become translators. It's different in Canada. You're a bilingual country. You have, a, 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 how do you say, an embedded demand for it. But around the world, there is a, also anecdotal information. This is not a statistic. Is that I do workshops and I do classes in several universities around the world. And the numbers of participants in the courses has been shrinking over the last five years, noticeably, especially after the pandemic. People are not studying languages and not becoming translators. So there is this counter forces that are happening. There is more technology, but there are fewer professionals and you need the professional to use the technology well.
I think what I'm deducting from your conversation, Renato, is that we are going to be in a hybrid mode, technology and human for foreseeable future, if it's not forever, because you always need somebody to continue being in the middle of either programming, either, you know, tweaking the, the technology, prompting. <laughs> and I, you know, and it's very funny because I saw like on the LinkedIn, it was a LinkedIn post. It was, I think by HBR, Hard Business Review, it was talking about, you know, people hiring prompt engineers in the U.S. and they're paying them like 300K. I don't know. If it's a fad, you know, like it's just it's six months, some new technology will come up and the person who quit their job to take on that job, maybe they don't have that job anymore or maybe they do something completely different. <laughs> The, the prompt engineering element of it is that it's the train the trainer and you're teaching the technology to replace you, essentially. So you might as well make as much money as possible and save it because it's something that we see in the data for AI business, which is a, an adjacent business to the localization business. Companies like Appen, whose revenue has tanked are having the competition of, first of all, cheaper resources from India, from Africa, from other markets that are doing tagging and labeling of information to train AI. But today, AI is really good at self-tagging, at self-labeling, at describing images and, and, and things like that, computer vision and so on. So essentially, what these people are doing is they are training the engine to replace them, which is something that we heard during the, the industrial revolution and the outsourcing of manufacturing to China, how managers in the middle of North America were training their replacements in China and in, 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 in right. India and in, in, in South America, and they were out of a job like that. That, that's a possibility with AI. You, 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 you're training your replacement. In, in so, so, so based on this, and what's your advice then to the idea that says, how much reskilling and retooling our industry needs to do if the technology is such a differentiator? It's a, it feels to me like it's a very different level of technology that we're talking about here. It's not an incremental development. This is complete, completely a disruptive technology that is coming to our industry. Not for everybody. That's the problem. I agree with you, not for everybody, but is there reskilling and retooling? And one thing we don't talk about, we talk about the impact on the, on the translator, but we don't, and I think most of our industry colleagues, they hire in the project management capacity because translators yes. are freelancers. So what's the impact also for those technologies on the, on the translator, on the, on the project manager, sorry. So this is, this is where I said that the, 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 the impact for linguists is different than the impact for the LSPs, right? For the LSPs, so, so there are a couple of things that I think it's going to be hard to, uh, for AI to replace. I, I, I stopped saying that it's impossible. I think it's going to be hard, right? One of the things is that you need somebody to make decisions, to decide what is going to be published, what is going to be translated. Uh, where it's going to be published and in what format it's going to be published. What is the deadline to do that kind of work? So it's one thing to translate one document into one language, which is the work of a translator. It's another thing managing 42 languages in five platforms for the launch of a product for imagine, I'm, I'm looking here, an iPhone that it goes into all over the world the same day 
there is software localization, there is website localization, there is packaging, there is uh, instructions, video, there is all types of content involved in the launch of a product like this. This requires management. And, and what large clients buy from LSPs is this management of the process. Orchestration of yeah? Exactly. And that is not going to change. And the, the, the role of the project manager is going to be using this technology to automate as many repetitive tasks as there are. What I have observed over the years is that we, we go through, through cycles. We, you, you talked about reskilling and changing work methods and so on. But what happens in the past is that we have a repetitive task. We automate it, right? And we're all happy. We think we, it, it, the first time I automated something was creating macros in the 1980s, right? You're, you're, so, oh, I automated it. My life is ready. I don't need to change anything. But then that automation creates new tasks. And then they become repetitive. And then you automate that again. And then there are new demands, new requests, and you incorporate, it becomes more complex. And there are new manual tasks that are asked checklists, worksheets, reports, and so on. Oh, the, I'm taking 40% of my time doing non-productive tasks. Let me automate the non-productive tasks. So we go into this spiral. We automate, we adopt the new process, we automate again, we adopt the new process, and we automate again. So what we have here is that it has become easier for the tech-savvy uh, project manager to automate its re his or her uh, repetitive tasks. And this is where I say that uh, generative AI has become a procrastination killer for me because I start, I use it. It, it, it all that work that generated anxiety that I needed to have to do, to analyze, to write, to, it gives me a starting point and it's very easy to edit. Uh, the first time, the very first time I did, I used ChatGPT was, I mean, maybe two days after it was launched, I was supposed to make a presentation for a conference in, in China. Okay. And uh, it was only a 15-minute presentation. And in most presentations, I have the information, I improvise, I don't prepare a script. But then it was a short presentation and the topic was broad. I didn't have audience interaction. There was going to be an interpreter. I said, I'd better write a script. So literally an hour before the presentation, I just prompted ChatGPT to write the script for me. Write a 15-minute script. This is the topic. Make sure to mention this and this and this, items that I knew that I wanted to talk about. It generated... Uh, script that was good for three minutes, right? But it was a start. And I started editing, editing. I recorded, I tried it, I recorded. It was seven minutes. Okay, I need to write twice as much as this. But at the end, it was perfect. I had 12 minutes, I made the presentation, I was able to get a question and show. It saved my life. It made me look professional. And I, if I had to start from scratch, I would have to think, and write and self-edit and so on. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I would just improvise, right? So it made me more professional, more productive, more accurate, 
and it didn't replace my job. It made me look good. <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, you know, we're coming up on the hour and I'm uh, very careful with your time. Uh, I don't want to take too much of your time. Always pleasure talking to you. I could talk to you for hours. Um, this is very fascinating. It's very fun and fascinating to be, to be honest with you. Um, any last uh, comments before my closing comments, I guess, on this episode? Robin, my, my comment to your audience is keep listening to these interviews. They're great. I saw two before. Love it. And the other comment is don't fall for the hype. Don't believe the doomsday and apocalypse promoters because we are very dynamic. We're human. We adapt. We still need people to consume we still need people to buy. And in order for people to buy, it's just basic economics. People need to have salaries, have jobs, make money to be able to spend and for the economy to keep going. So we will find ways as a society, as an industry to thrive and survive. And I'm a big believer in the value of the language industry to society as a whole. As I said in the beginning, we bridge we allow communication to happen and I'm very excited to be part of it. And I hope you are too. Thank you so much, Renato. I want to thank our listeners and our audience for taking part of this episode and for watching us and keeping an eye on uh, the content that we are delivering. If you like what we do, if you like the content that we're sharing with you, please like share and comment on, on our content. And one last note, this channel is a self-starting channel. It's, not sponsored by anybody. It's my personal passion to contribute back to the industry. I'm not funded by anybody. I'm not sponsored by anybody. This is a very self-made channel. So we're only four months old now. And we have close to about 40,000 views on YouTube. So we're getting there. We are looking for your support whenever you can give us that support. Appreciate it. Thank you, Renato, for your time. Much appreciated. You're welcome back to this channel anytime. I call it Mikasa is Sukasa. You know, if you if you if you ever need another voice to be broadcasting your message, you're welcome to use this channel as your own. And appreciate it. And thank you, everybody. Until next time.